may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. Um, my voice seems a little lower than usual because I have a cold, so I'm just I'm apologizing up front if I start hacking. Or, uh, but we're glad you're here. If you are in uh, K through sixth grade, we welcome you to go down to the kids' class. Awesome. All right. Well, we we're in the fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, we've been building up to the big day. Uh, tomorrow night. I can't tell you what that big day is, but you have to come tomorrow to find out. Um, but I, th- I, really, I thought that Judges, going through Judges was appropriate for Advent because you have this scenario where there's great darkness and then out of darkness comes uh, a little bit of light and this light builds um, moving towards uh, Christmas. And so as we reflect on Judges, we reflected on this tremendously dark time um, that Israel goes through, and they're longing for some kind of light-filled leadership to bring them out of this proverbial Egypt and into uh, the promised land. But none came. The final verse in Judges 21-25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the big finish of Judges. And again, arguably the, one of the darkest books in the Old Testament that just, just goes, gets worse and worse and worse and then ends by saying there's no king and that people are doing what is right in their own eyes. And this is actually a refrain in Judges that occurs multiple times. Uh, we've seen some of these. Uh, Judges 17.5 says the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I, I recapped that story last week of this young boy who had stolen silver from his mother and then returned it and his mother made an idol out of it in gratitude for his, uh, her son's honesty. And then that son grows up to be an idol worshiper, even builds a shrine and ordains his own son as the priest of those gods. That's what's tied to, in those days, there was no king in Israel. We also read in Judges 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. This introduces uh, the tribe of Dan looking for a place to settle down. They bump into Micah and uh, his priest and his household gods, and they actually steal Micah's priest and the household gods to establish their own personal uh, pantheon of gods for their tribe. And that's what's tied to there was no king in Israel. Last week, we talked about Judges 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Those of you who had the pleasure of being here last week heard about a gang rape and a murder, and this was tied to, of of a concubine, a sex slave, and this was tied to this phrase, there was no king 
in Israel. So the refrain seems to have purpose. The writer keeps placing that refrain in there again and again and again. It's toward the end of the book, so we've spiraled down to the very bottom. We've gotten through the twelfth judge, that, that of Samson, and this refrain repeats itself. And it seems to be saying, because there was no human king and no human authority over the people that was creating this very dark environment. It seems odd to modern ears because that's our preferred future is that no one's telling us what to do. I mean, our whole country in the U.S. was, was started by telling a king to kiss off, right? Like, like we don't want a king. We don't like kings, right? And par- part of that, it, it, it continues to this day. Like, we, we don't want authority over us. We want democracy. We want freedom. We want to do whatever we want to do, whatever is right in our own eyes. And, and while I'm, I'm pro-democracy, I think Judges shows us that no authority uh, leads to a very, very dark place. Humans flourish under good authority. Now, all that said, it is strange that Judges keeps repeating this refrain of there's no king in Israel. At this point in the history of Israel, there's never been a king. They've never had a king. So it's a very odd refrain. There's no king. There's no king. There's no king. Up to this point, God has been their king. And it seems that God wants to be their king until further notice. They've been given this instruction in Deuteronomy 17, given to Moses. Moses says, when you you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. It's even clearer in the instructions given by Moses that, okay, okay, you're going to have a king someday, but that will be a king that God chooses, not you. You don't choose that king. God chooses that king. A few verses later in that same chapter in Deuteronomy, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. You see this inner working between the priests and the king and the word of God. Eventually, that word of God will be uttered by prophets. And so we see through these three offices that God is establishing the kingdom of God on earth through the rule of a king in concert with priests under the authority of the word of God uttered by the prophets. And so as we read in Judges, there's no king, there's no king, there's no king. We shouldn't hear that all they need is just some human to, be, to take charge. They need something more. Contained in Judges is definitely this attitude that, king, that human kings are not the full solution. In the first chapter of Judges, we get a quote from a, a, a pagan king. This is interesting that this is even in there. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. 
It's the quote from a defunct king lamenting that he has lost his kingdom, even though he's taken kingdoms away from 70 other lesser kings. And who took that kingdom away from him? God, the God of Israel. This is how Israel even pulls off taking his kingdoms away from him. It's not because they have a great human king. It's because they have God as their king. Some of the judges seem to also get this when Gideon is asked to become king over them. He rejects that. He says, no, I don't, I don't want to be your king. Uh, Deborah and Barak seem to get this when they write their song uh, about their victory in Judges 5. Verse 1 says, the leaders took the lead in Israel that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. It's an incredibly defiant portion of the song. Hero kings, hero princes, are there any human kings out there? Are there any princes out there? I want you to hear this. I sing to the Lord. It was the Lord that went out before us in battle. It wasn't some kind of a, a human king. To the Lord I will sing. So we end Judges. I know some of you are happy about that. We've, we've made it through Judges. And... We still have no king. We've heard this refrain, there's no king in Israel, there's no king in Israel, there's no king in Israel. And then Judges rolls right into Ruth. Just a short book, four chapters. On the surface, doesn't seem to be all that important. Very, very kind of common story. Ruth, the heroine of the book, she's from Moab. And the Moabites were part of the Canaanite peoples of the Promised Land that were to be exterminated. And so here we have Ruth who intermarries with an Israelite who's fled his city, Bethlehem, because of a famine. And so they get married, and her husband, her Israelite husband dies. She ends up resettling in Bethlehem, of all places, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she marries again. And she marries a guy named Boaz... And Ruth and Boaz have a, a child named Obed. And we read this at the end of Ruth, Ruth 4, verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So that's, that's grandmother. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then it's, that's kind of it. There's not, not a lot of a fanfare, just a brief mention Ruth and Boaz have Obed, Obed has Jesse, Jesse has David, have a nice day, right? And then we roll into 1 Samuel, all right? So we're Judges and, and Ruth, and now we're in 1 Samuel. And Samuel is the last judge and the first prophet. He's the last judge and the first prophet, very much a transitional period. Samuel does a pretty good job as a judge, and he tries to pass the leadership torch to his sons. His sons are absolute reprobates, and the people will have none of it. Like, we do not want your sons in charge of us. And so they come to Samuel, and they say, please, 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 would you anoint a king over us? So here, yet again, we see this. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. 
This is upsetting to, to Samuel, and he knows, again, that, that God's the one that's going to establish a king, that the people should not be establishing kings over themselves. And so it says in verse uh, 6 of 1 Samuel 8, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out from Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so God lets him know, okay, they want a king, give them a king, but them wanting to establish their own king is rejection of God, which they had rejected him much sooner when they were worshiping false gods. And so Samuel gives them their first king. And so we have Saul. That thing that Judges was crying out for. We, we, there's no king in Israel. We just need a king. Just give us a king. If we had a king, then things would be right. And so it seems like, okay, finally we get a king. But Saul's horrible. He's horrible. He, he, he's a coward. He's impulsive. He's paranoid. He's selfish. He's corrupt. He eventually goes mad. I know it's hard to believe that Government leaders could be that way, but, but it's, it's possible. And this is how Saul ends up becoming this madman, paranoid. And it shows Israel, you need more than just a human king. You, you thought you just needed a king like all the other countries, and if you get the right king, that everything would be okay, but that's, that's not all you need. In fact, sometimes that can sabotage the very country itself. And then this gives away, finally, to the divine choosing of a king. Remember back Ruth and Boaz having the son Obed, and Obed has Jesse. Well, Jesse has eight sons. And after King Saul goes mad, God sends Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint the king of God's choosing. And so he gets there, and he sees these seven sons. And he goes to the tallest, the oldest, the one that went to the Ivy League schools first. And he starts getting out his anointing oil, and he's like, this guy, he's going to bring a, a great administration into the nation of Israel. And about the time he's about to anoint this, this, this first oldest son, God's like, nope, no go. And Samuel backs off. And he, oh, okay, maybe I should pray. All right, Lord, help me out here. Is it this next one? No. Next one? No. Next one? No. Next one? No. Well, I'm out of sons here. Hey, Jesse, is there another one? Well, yeah, I mean, he's the runt, you know. I mean, we actually made him watch the sheep so we could be here for this very special event. And he goes, well, bring him in. Bring him in. And so he brings him in, and we hear the description here, 1 Samuel 16, 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now we have a king of God's choosing. 
He chooses David. And I can't get it to light. There we go. This is a great idea last night. Yeah? He's a good king in many ways. He's a good king in many ways. But in later years, he crashes and burns. He commits adultery with the wife of one of his choice military commanders. He commits murder trying to cover up the adultery, ends up ruining his family, and begins the ruin of Israel in the process. David's not it. Solomon is the next king. He's a good-ish king, but his unfettered appetite for wealth and sex sinks him as well. His son, Rehoboam, lacks character and competence. He runs the nation in the ground. The nation splits into two countries, northern and southern. Most of the kings that you read about in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, are all the next generation of kings after Solomon. And they pretty much just do what's right in their own eyes. And things get darker and darker and darker and darker. And so with each new king, it, it seems like we light the candle and then we blow it out. We light the candle, we blow it out. We light the candle, we blow it out. We're just waiting, waiting, waiting for that king. And eventually, again, the, the entire country of Israel is completely, at least seemingly, deconstructed and exiled all over the ancient world. And you would think at that point would be the time to give up. You say, we're done here. We tried. We've done the king thing. We, we can't seem to get things off the ground. But they don't give up. And in part, they don't give up because of the message of the prophets. The prophets keep, yes, confronting them about their sin and idol worship, but also beating the drum of this future king. They would call him a messiah that would one day come and would bring light and life in the midst of great darkness and death. And so we, what we just heard read, right, is one of the prophets, Isaiah. And he, he says that this king that's coming, he will be a light in the darkness, right? We, we just read this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That, that was being given to the, to the people of Israel who were completely exiled all over the ancient world, despairing, struggling, wondering, could ever there be a king in Israel that could actually bring light and life and hope? That this king would also bring great joy, uh, joy like when you've got a new harvest season, or joy when you've just had a, a military victory over uh, a very dangerous enemy. We just read this, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. The, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And that this king would use his, his good authority to actually bring down the oppressor and bring up those who had been so long under oppression. Verses 4 of Isaiah 9. For the yoke of his burden and the staff, for, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. We just read about the day of Midian, right? Gideon, Midianites, if you were with us. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. We also read that he will arrive as a child. It's kind of interesting. We wouldn't expect this, I don't think. Describing this great king that's going to bring light and joy and bring down the oppressor. But here in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But he, this great and mighty king, will also uh, experience what it's like to be a vulnerable child. But not just any child. Look at the next few phrases. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just called this child a, one who's a mighty God, one who's everlasting. That's right. They're tucked away in the prophecies of the Old Testament that this one who would come to be their king would be a divine human king, and that somehow this divine human king would come and bring that light and that joy and that freedom from oppression, and a government, it says in verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's just know this king is coming to save his people and that that salvation will not just be a temporary thing like we see in Judges, right? Gideon gave a salvation that was a few decades, right? Samson brought a salvation. It was a few decades. But, but this is forevermore. This king will establish a kingdom of light and life forever. And the reason he's able to do that is because he is both human, but also divine. And this divine human will lay his life down. He will lay his life down to save his people from the oppression of the worst enemies of all, sin, death, and hell. He will save us from the consequences of doing what is right in our own eyes. See, as, as those in, in Judges were crying out for a king. I don't think what they realized was that they needed a savior king. They needed a savior king. As do you and I. We need a savior king. This is the one that we're waiting for in in Advent. We're not just just waiting for for someone to come and just kind of fix the the systems that exist here. we, We need one to come and absolutely utterly save us from sin and its effects. And so this one who's divine and human, who I'll have, you have to come back tomorrow night to find out fully who that is. But we will be singing this song tomorrow night. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Turns out this king is not just for Israel, but is for the earth, for all the nations. Right? So why Jesus says, baptize Uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He's like, my rule, my reign is is for all nations, that all would come and be saved by and bow to the Savior King. 
Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. You see that? See how it pulls those together? Both of Savior and of a reigning king. Let men their songs employ. Uh, another phrase, who rules, uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. He rules the world with truth and grace. You see that? This, this truth, this ruling, reigning king, who's also a savior, and through his death on the cross, he's offering grace. This is how he rules the world and makes the nations prove. Again, it's not, he's not just redeeming Israel, he's redeeming Israel and all nations. The light of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. You, just, you see that throughout that hymn, backward, back, back and forth, as, as the Savior King is, ex, is ex described and, uh, and worth is ascribed to him. And we are told to sing joy, right? Joy that this one has come at Christmas. We celebrate this Savior King every time we come to the table. Doesn't seem like a king's table, does it? It seemed to, 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 to have, you know, would need to have some prime rib, you know, some kind of rich meat or some fine wine or some nice uh, white tablecloths or something that uh, is befitting a king. But it's, not, it's simple. And it's bread and, and, it, and it's wine, right? And on that day when he was sitting there with his disciples, he takes that bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them and says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know, yes, he is a king, and he is going to rule, and he's going to reign, but he's going to usher that rule and reign in by the giving up of his own body. In the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know that this kingdom that he's bringing is, is not just a me and Jesus kingdom. It, it's a, a, a kingdom of brothers and sisters in a family, just like we've talked about in the, in the baptism. That Charlotte, she's professing that she's not only joining Jesus, she's joining her brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And so as we come to the king's table, this one who is also our savior, and we take the bread and we take the cup, we celebrate that he has been the Savior for us, that he has saved us from sin, saved us from death, saved us from hell, and saved us to an ongoing relationship with him that will last forevermore, and an ongoing relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ that will also last forevermore. So if you don't like these people, better get used to them, because you're going to be with them for eternity. And we will be way different than we are now in heaven, so don't worry. But this is, this is our king's table. This is our king's table. And so you're welcome to the king's table if you've received him as your savior. If you've realized your need for forgiveness of your sin and you've gone to, to, to Christ and asked him to save you, to forgive you, to rescue you, you've entered into his kingdom under his rule and his reign. And you're like, well, I like the savior part, but not the king part. If you don't have the king part, you don't understand the savior part. If, if, if you've come to, to truly grieve your sin and know your need for a Savior, and you've experienced that truth and grace, then 
What else can you do but submit to him as your king? And so he, he rules with truth and grace. And so if you've come to that place where you've received his, his salvation, you've, you've bowed the knee to his kingship, we welcome you to the king's table. If you've yet to do that, we encourage you to do it today, to receive it, to receive forgiveness, to receive that new life that's only found in Christ, and to profess that today. And you're welcome to do that. You can indicate it on the little card there. Let us know, hey, I, I, I took this step today. Uh, you can come back there and talk to me about it in a minute, and I'll be back there and uh, be, be happy to, to chat about that or after the, after the service. But if you're still at that place where you're like, I'm, just, I'm new to this, I'm beginning to explore this, you know you're not a Christian, I'm going to encourage you to remain in your seat during this time. And just think about what you're hearing, pray about it, uh, but just to remain, remain in your seat. Let's pray. Lord, we do, we come to you as our Savior King. Lord, without you, we would. We would do right in our own eyes, and we would spiral down like any other uh, sinful human living life apart from you. And so, Lord, we, do, we don't want that. We want to be in relationship with you. We're so grateful that you've paid the ultimate price so that we could actually be in relationship with you, and you could be our, our king, and we could live in your kingdom. So thank you for this simple reminder of this bread and this cup that we are at the king's table, not, just, not because of something we've done, but because of what you've done for us and that you've welcomed us to this table. Thank you that this table is eternal, that we will dine with you and with one another forever and ever and ever and ever, and that, again, you have bought and paid for that with your own blood. So bless the bread and the cup, Lord, as we commune with you, one an- with one another. Thank you so much for being a light in the darkness, being joy where once there was despair, bringing us freedom from the oppression of sin and death and hell, establishing now and ongoing and certainly forevermore your government that will bring hope, that will bring glory, that will bring joy, that will bring flourishing, starting in this life, yes, but certainly in the life to come. So God, we're so grateful to be subjects in your good kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never done this before, um, the way this works, those on this side of the room will make a line on this side of the row, and you'll take a piece of bread and a cup, and then slip around on the side and then back into your chair, and just take it whenever you're ready. You don't have to worry about like waiting for an indicator or anything like that. Uh, same thing on this side. You guys make a line on this side of the road. Take the bread, the cup, slip around on the side, back to your seat. Um, while that's going on, I'll be in the back with a couple other folks available to pray with, with you. You can come back there and pray for me. I have a cold, so, you, you know, think about that. Do I want to pray with Pastor? Um, or you could think, Pastor needs prayer because he's got to preach tomorrow. And so just, yeah, you can work with that. Pray about that. Pray about coming back for prayer. Um, let's begin.